0: Um, you know, if you've been on retreats before, um, you know that oftentimes people will come back from retreats saying that they've experienced this spiritual high, and they'll be on this, you know, spiritual high for several weeks following the retreat. And I don't know if you've ever thought about why it is that people tend to experience those types of spiritual experiences um, whenever they go on these retreats. Well, I'll tell you that it's not because. Sandy Cove is somehow extra-holy ground, and I'll also tell you that it's not because your speaker is somehow extra special, I guarantee you that that is not the case. The reason why uh, people experience these types of spiritual highs when they go on retreats is because God rewards those who seek Him diligently. So we read in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, and without faith it is impossible to please him for whoever would draw near to God must believe he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. And so when we come on to these retreats we're able to put our everyday lives on hold for a little bit and for here four worship sessions, we're able to together sing praises to the Lord, hear from his word, and seek him with our hearts. And so we have two sessions left together. And so uh, my prayer is that during these times, you are earnestly seeking after the Lord. And I believe that he will meet you. Now, um, this morning we were talking about uh, what it means for us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Um, how we can grow in our faith as believers. For my next two messages, we're going to be leaving the book of Philippians and we're going to be turning now to the Gospel of John. Now, um, tonight's passage is one that you're probably uh, at least familiar with. Uh, But it's a message that I think cannot be said enough, that a church cannot hear enough. And we're going to be talking tonight about how you ought to grow in your relationships with one another. So turn with me to John chapter 13, and I'm going to be reading from verse 21 through 35. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, this is John, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then, after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, What you are going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money back, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So, after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself, and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, Where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Uh, Please join me as we pray for the Lord's blessing upon our time. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to once again gather together to sit under your word. We thank you for the things you have shown us already. And Lord, we ask now for even more, that you would do far more than we could ask or imagine, that you would send to us your spirit, and that we would experience it like a mighty rushing wind, that you would give to each person here eyes to see and ears to hear the beauty, the power, the wonder of the gospel. So Father, once again, we ask that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts will be pleasing to you. And we ask for this in Jesus' name, amen. You know, there's a story about a well-known Scottish pastor who was named Samuel Rutherford. And one day, a very famous and powerful, high-ranking archbishop came to visit him, but he came in disguise so that Samuel Rutherford would not recognize him. Rutherford, being the good Christian that he was, welcomed the stranger into his home and invited him to stay the night. And this so happened to have been on a Saturday evening. And every Saturday evening, Mrs. Rutherford would gather together their children for a time of catechesis. Now, for those of you who don't know what um, catechism is, it's a way of teaching theology through a series of questions and answers. So, most of you here probably have heard of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Question one is What is the chief end of man? What's the point of life? And what's the answer? To glorify God. Good. Good. Awesome. Yeah, to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Well, this is what Mrs. Rutherford were doing, was doing with her children. And while she was doing this, she decided to throw a question out to this stranger. And the question that she asked him was, how many commandments are there? And this a stranger guest replied, 11. And Mrs. Rutherford said, what a sad thing that a man your age whose hair is sprinkled with gray should not even know how many commandments there are. For there is not a child above six years old in our parish who does not know that." Now the man said nothing in response, and the next morning, being that it was a Sunday, revealed who he was to Samuel Rutherford. and. It being a Sunday, Rutherford decided to invite the Archbishop to come and to preach at his church that morning. So the Archbishop goes to the church. He climbs into the pulpit. He looks at Mrs. Rutherford, who was sitting at the front row, and he opens up his Bible to John chapter 13 and begins to read, a new commandment I give to you. Now... If we're being honest, if you and I had been in Mrs. Rutherford's shoes, we would have had the same response that she did. And I don't think we would have been as harsh as perhaps she was. I think that, um, at least for me, I kind of would have felt a little embarrassed for that old man, and I would have said something like, ooh, you were so close. You just missed by one. (laughs) Answer's ten. But you see, the reason why Mrs. Rutherford responded in the way that she did, and the reason why most of us would respond in the similar way, is because we have not paid close enough attention to John chapter 13. There is a commandment here. And some people, like this archbishop, call it the 11th commandment. And what I'd like to do this evening is to take some time working through this commandment by... Thinking about a couple of questions, I'd like us to consider what exactly this commandment is and why it is that we must obey it, okay? So let's begin by considering what this commandment is. And the first thing that I want to point out to you is that Jesus does in fact call this a new commandment. But then if you look at the first part of what Jesus says, that you love one another, there's actually nothing new about that. And so I want you to try to imagine that you're a person who is listening as the Gospel of John is being read to you for the first time. And then whoever's reading the text gets to the words, A new commandment I give to you. And then you're sitting there and your mind begins to race. You sit up on the edge of your seat. A new commandment! For 1,000 years, there have only been 10. But now Jesus is about to give us number 11. And maybe they were wondering to themselves, is this going to be a thou shall, or is this going to be a thou shall not? Which is it going to be? And then they hear the words, that you love one another. And for anyone who knew the Old Testament, they would have immediately thought of Leviticus 19.18, where God commands his people to love their neighbors as themselves. And they would have thought, this commandment doesn't sound very new at all. Talk about a major letdown. But then comes the next part of the commandment, where Jesus says, Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And so you see, this commandment isn't new in the sense that it comes out of nowhere, it is new. Because Jesus takes that Old Testament command, and he radically expands it and infuses it with new meaning. You see, whereas before the standard of love commanded was that you love others as you love yourself, now the standard is to love others just as Jesus has loved us. And it's staggering when you think about it because even that first Old Testament standard was impossible to live out. The pastor John Piper, in a book that he wrote called What Jesus Demands of the World, puts it this way. He's talking about that old standard, the commandment to love our neighbors as ourselves, and he writes that it seems to me to be an overwhelming commandment. It seems to demand that I tear the skin off of my body and wrap it around another person so that I feel that I am that other person. And all of the longings that I have for my own safety and health and success and happiness, I now feel for that other person as though he were me. It is an absolutely staggering commandment. Now, that idea of tearing off your skin and wrapping it around somewhere else is a creepy thought, but, It serves the point. To love your neighbor as yourself is an overwhelming commandment. It is practically impossible. And then Jesus takes this nearly impossible standard, and he makes it even more impossible. He commands us to love one another the way that he loved us. Which begs the question, how exactly has Jesus loved us? And I don't know how many of you knew this, but the book of 1 John is basically an exposition of this new commandment. John, in 1 John, talks about this new commandment in four separate passages. And in chapter 4, John reiterates the command that we love one another in verse 7, where he writes, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. And then later on in verse 10, John defines that love that we are called to show. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. And so from 1 John 4.10, we learn two very important things about the way that you and I have been loved through Jesus. First, the love that you and I have been shown through Christ was a completely selfless love. God sent Jesus not because we loved him, but because he loved us first. Now, friends, I think all of us recognize it's easy to love people who are lovable. It is easy to be generous to people who are generous to you. You don't need the gospel to be able to do either of those things. But the love that Jesus is commanding us to show is one that is completely selfless. A love that is given without any expectation whatsoever of return. You know, out of the two of us, my wife Hannah is the organized one. And so when Hannah and I got married, Hannah kept this very detailed spreadsheet of who had given us what and what the estimated value of that gift was. And we did that so that when those people were getting married, we would at least give them back how much they had given to us. We wanted to match their gift when the opportunity came. And this is the way all humans tend to think. It's kind of this quid pro quo interaction that we have with others. And this is why one of my seminary professors, Ed Welch, he he gave this chapel message where he says, You know, sometimes the best gifts are the ones that you get and then you reach into your pocket to try to pay it back and you find your pocket completely empty. You realize you can't even pay that gift back that you have received. That is what it means to love others with a selfless type of love. And I'd ask you to take a second to think about the relationships in your life. In your relationships, your friendships. Uh, your relationships with your family members, are you always keeping a running tally of how much you've done for them versus how much they've done for you? Are you the type of person that only loves those people that you consider to be lovable? Because if that is the case, you are not loving others as Christ has loved you. And as my wife Hannah will tell you, one of my personal mantras is that you and I have been called to love the unlovables. I say that to her all of the time, she's heard it countless times. And you know a big part of the reason why I keep saying it over and over again is not because Hannah doesn't know it, it's because I need to remind myself because it is not always a very easy thing to do. And so not only is the love that we're called to show selfless, the second characteristic of Jesus' love is that it was sacrificial. Again, 1 John 4.10 says that Jesus was sent to be the propitiation for our sins. And he could only be that because he laid down his life literally for us. And so the love that you and I are now being called to show is a love that would even be willing to die for the good of someone else. Now, the reality is, the thankful reality, is that most of us here are not going to be called to die for someone else. But... We are being called to die to ourselves by laying down our pride, by laying down our preferences and our desires, by laying down our time and our energy and our gifts, all for the sake of loving others. And so friends, are you able right now to identify concrete ways in which you are loving others in a sacrificial way? Can you identify ways in which you are spending your time, your energy, your money? And here, I don't want you to be thinking about your spouses or your children. That's to be expected. Most people, Christian or not, love their family in a sacrificial way. This is not the context within which Jesus gives us this commandment. So outside of your families... Who are you showing love to in a way that costs you something? Are you able to lay down your pride in order to forgive others? Are you sacrificing your time to serve? Are you putting others ahead of yourself and thinking of them, praying for them, checking in on them? You know, I was greatly encouraged by Elder Sam's prayer this morning. How he was leading this church to pray for those in this congregation who are going through some really difficult things and I do believe that the most effective thing that any of us can do for people who are going through struggles is to pray for them but we must also bolster those prayers with concrete sacrificial acts of love it can't just stop at the prayers and I was further encouraged to hear about your plans for Lansdale Day is that what it's called man? Lansdale Day Signing up for those two-hour slots is going to cost you some time. It's going to cost you some energy. It's going to cost you to step out into um, something that may be uncomfortable and praying for people and talking to strangers. But that is yet another way that you can show this type of concrete, sacrificial love. And while I think that this command to love one another with a sacrificial, selfless love is very clear, I think it's very straightforward. The reality is that many times it's not that clear what that love ought to look like. You know, many years back, before I went to seminary when I was still working as an attorney, my wife and I were part of a small group where the group was comprised of a bunch of married couples and one single guy. And so naturally, as the married couples, we were kind of conspiring. How can we help this guy find someone and get married? And we'll just say that um, this person's name was Joe. Joe Schmo. okay, what was his name. <laughs> and this guy had shared with us that he really wanted to get married, but there were a number of obstacles um, to him actually doing that. Um, for one, he dressed terribly. Now, I'm not Mr. Fashion. Um, I'm not like Steve with his, you know, shirt and... Uh, his <laughs> and like Dan with his, like, pants rolled (laughs) in. I'm not that. But compared to this guy, Joe, I'm Mr. GQ. (laughs) Okay, not only that, this guy had an awful haircut, and I know what you're thinking. You know, you don't have room to talk. I understand. This guy's haircut was awful, and he had these very thick, ugly glasses. So, Here's what we decided to do. The the couples in our small group gathered together and we said, we're going to help this guy. We're going to pool our money together. We're going to get this guy a nice haircut at a fancy salon. We're going to buy him contact lenses. We're going to take him shopping. And we're going to buy him an entire new wardrobe. And so that's what we did. And this man looked like a million bucks. It was like one of those extreme makeover shows. He looked like a completely different person. And we were all sitting there patting ourselves in the back, you know, thinking what an awesome job we had done. But you know what happened right after? Joe stopped coming to church, and he cut off all contact. We thought we had been loving this brother in a Christ-like way. And instead, we had deeply offended him, and we had alienated him from the body of Christ. The point is this. We know. It is clear. We are to love others in a Christ-like way. But many times, we don't know the best way how. And so as we consider this command, this 11th command, Not only is the love that we are to show to be selfless, not only is it to be sacrificial, it is also to be smart. I'm sorry, I couldn't think of another word that started with S. It's imperfect, but you know what I mean. It has to be an educated type of love, a love that is saturated with the wisdom of Christ. Perhaps the best example of this is the death of Lazarus in John chapter 11. Lazarus dies of a sudden and unexpected illness and some days prior to his death Mary and Martha have sent for Jesus to come and to heal their brother Jesus intentionally shows up four days after Lazarus has died but as soon as Jesus arrives Martha is the first to go out and to speak with Jesus and she says to him Lord, if you had been here my brother would not have died A little bit later, her sister Mary goes out to speak with Jesus, and she says the exact same thing. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Both sisters have suffered the exact same loss. Both sisters speak the exact same words. But Jesus ministers to them in completely different ways. Martha is composed. And she's seeking to understand intellectually how and when Lazarus is going to rise again. And so Jesus ministers to her by giving her a theological lesson. Now, Mary is so overcome with grief, she breaks down at Jesus' feet and begins to weep. Jesus does not give Mary a theological lesson. That's not what she needs in that moment. Instead, that Jesus gets down, weeps with her, and ministers to her by sharing in her grief. Jesus never took a cookie-cutter approach to people. He loved them with great wisdom and with great skill. And that is what we must endeavor to do as well. This is why, if you look at Philippians chapter one, Paul's prayer for the believers in Philippi is that, that their love would abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. Not just love, but love coupled with knowledge and discernment. And so, brothers and sisters, for us to love like Jesus, we must strive to know Jesus. And the best way for us to do that is to study the scriptures which reveal him to us. This is a big part of what it means for us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. It is only as we study the word of God that we will know and understand the love with which we are called to love one another. Now I'm still at this point under the question of what and I am going to move on to the question of why but before I do I want to make two final points, quick points about this question of what. Now, just a moment ago, I was talking about loving people who are unlovable. You know, they're difficult. But actually, the 11th commandment is more extensive than even that. Because in the first part of this passage, and perhaps you were wondering why we were uh, reading this, in the first part of this passage, Jesus reveals to John who it is that's going to betray him. And Jesus says, it's the one to whom I'm going to give this piece of bread, and he gives it to Judas Iscariot, and Jesus says to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Basically, Jesus is saying to Judas, I know exactly what you're about to do, so go okay. ahead and do it, but I want you to notice, Jesus does not call out Judas in front of the entire group. He doesn't, quote-unquote, blow up his spot. In fact, verse 28 tells us, that no one at the table knew why Jesus said what he did to Judas, and I think that Judas, I'm sorry, I think that Jesus doesn't try to embarrass Judas in front of everybody because he was trying to love Judas even at that point. It was because Jesus wanted to love Judas that right before this, as Jesus was washing the disciples' feet, he also washed. Judas's feet, knowing all that time that Judas was about to betray him. It was because Jesus wanted to show love to Judas that Jesus chose him as a disciple in the first place and poured himself out to teach him and to train him, all the while knowing that Judas was going to betray him. Jesus loved that man, Judas. And so it's not surprising that Jesus instructed his disciples to love even their enemies, to do good to those who hate them, to bless those who curse them, and to pray for those who hurt them. To love as Jesus loved means that we are to love even our enemies. Now, when I look out at the church, um, when I look at the people of God, I think that this is incredibly rare. I can give you a bunch of examples of people who hurt those who hurt them, who hurt those who um, offend them in some way, but not too many who do good to those who hurt them, who pray for those who hurt them. This is all part of what it means to obey the 11th commandment. Now, as I mentioned this morning, it truly is an exciting thing that the Lord has been blessing Cornerstone with this recent growth. But I want you to be aware that the enemy will try to derail this work by sowing seeds of division among you. By trying to convince some of you that others of you are their enemy. But by committing yourselves to the 11th commandment, you will be able to stay the course. And you'll be able to do that through the misunderstandings and the disagreements that are inevitable. So that was my first final point. Here's the second final point. Again, all under what? (laughs) As I mentioned this morning, I am a pastor's kid, which means that I grew up in a uh, Korean immigrant church. And for all its faults, the Korean immigrant church did do many things extremely well. And one of the things that the Korean immigrant church does very well is to show love to their pastor. And I remember when I was growing up, every year at Christmas, after the Christmas service, our trunk would be packed (laughs) with gifts from the congregants. And these gifts weren't anything extravagant, okay? Mostly there were tithes that were ugly as sin. And my dad would offer me the tithe, and I'd be like, no, thank you. These things were hideous. But still, these were people in the congregation who were trying to do whatever they could to try to show their love and their appreciation to my father. But most churches today, Asian American or otherwise, don't do a very good job of showing their pastors this type of Christ-like love. Now I just want to be clear, Andrew did not ask me to say this. (laughs) He did not slip me a 20 on the side and give me a little (laughs) wink. And I'm not saying this because I feel somehow slighted by my church. I I think I am well-loved at our church. I only share this because I know how challenging ministry can be. And while there are many things that bring a pastor encouragement, it just seems that there are many more moments of discouragement. And I noted before that the enemy will try to derail this work by sowing seeds of division among you. But another one of the enemy's key tactics is to wear your pastor down to the point that he feels like throwing in the towel. That is something that the enemy is trying to do. And so I'm not saying make sure you buy Andrew gifts at Christmas. I'm not saying make sure you buy your staff um, presents. All I am saying is that I want you to know that one of the best ways for you to protect your church is to make sure that you are living out this 11th commandment, especially when it comes to your Pastor and to your staff. All right, now let's move on to the question of why. Why should you and I seek to love one another with a selfless, sacrificial, and smart love? Why should we try to love even our enemies? And the first reason is very simple. It's the reason that we talked about this morning. Again, this is a commandment, not a suggestion. It is not a piece of advice. This is a direct command from the King of Kings, from your Lord and Savior. And so when you think about someone who has hurt you, or someone in your life who is really unlovable, I know the natural inclination is to search desperately for some, side of, some sort of exception to the rule. But Jesus here makes clear, both through his words and through his own example, that there are no exceptions. We are commanded to love as Jesus loved us. The second reason why we ought to obey this command is for the sake of evangelism. Jesus says in verse 35 that it is by the love that we have for one another that people will know that you are my disciples. And I gave you an illustration this morning uh, from Francis Chan, and allow me to give you one more. Uh, In one of his sermons, Francis asks people to engage in a mental exercise. And I'd like you to do it. Now, imagine that you are a person who has grown up for your entire life on a deserted island. You're the only inhabitant of this island. And the only thing you have to read on this island is a copy of the Bible. And so, you have read through the Bible, you have become a Christian, but you have never been to church. The only thing you know about the church is what you have read in the pages of the Bible. And you read in the book of Acts that the church is a place where people are devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to prayer. That they are sharing everything freely with one another and that if any had need, they would even sell their own possessions in order to meet that need. And from John chapter 13, you have this understanding that the people in the church are people who will love one another in a selfless, sacrificial, and smart way. That even if there are issues that come up or disagreements that uh, form, that they are nevertheless going to love one another. And he says, imagine now that you have been rescued and you go directly from the rescue helicopter and end up at the doors of Cornerstone Presbyterian Church? Would that person come here and be confused? Would that person end up saying, wait a second, that person offended you, so you no longer talk to them? Would they say, wait a second, so all you do is show up to service one day a week, and then you don't do anything else to love others in this church the way Christ loved you? Friends, what I want you to know that, that is that it's the job of your pastor to proclaim the gospel to you. But your job is to make the gospel visible. And you do that by the way that you love one another. The question is, are you doing your job? You know, I remember when I was working as an attorney... I would have these annual performance reviews and I'm sure many of you at your jobs go through the same thing. But I remember this one time I was sitting with these two partners and they were giving me feedback on my work and they were um, saying to me, James, these are the things that you need to do in order to be like us. And that was probably the beginning of the end of my time as attorney. Because the first thought that came into my mind was, I don't want to be anything like you. But I want you to imagine for a moment that this is your performance review. And what you're being judged on is how you're doing in making the gospel visible. And Jesus is saying to you, friend, if you want to be like me, if you want to be part of me, you must love others As I have loved you. How would you fare in that review? The Pastor Rick Phillips says that it is this Christ-like love that is the difference between a community and a club. A club is a place where you go to hang out with people who you like and who are like you. A community is a place where the love that is shared binds people who are radically different from one another and who at times are very difficult, let's be honest. And here is the thing, (coughs) everyone wants to be part of that (coughs) community, but so few people are willing to put in the work to make that a reality. And so friends, I just wanna challenge (coughs) you who are here. Each one of you will determine whether or not Cornerstone is going to be a club or whether it's going to be a community. And your job, your assignment, is to live out the 11th commandment and to make the gospel visible. Now, if you're a person who really struggles with this idea and you really can't find the motivation to do this, what it means is that you need to stop and you need to reflect until you are once again moved by the beauties of the gospel. There's this video that I saw online a while back. Um, On January the 12th, 2007, one of the most famous violinists in the world, a man named Joshua Bell, started playing in a subway station in Washington, D.C. Many of you have probably seen this video. Three nights prior to that, he had sold out Symphony Hall in Boston, where the average ticket price was around $100. And he's sitting there in this subway station playing for about 45 minutes. Again, this is one of the most gifted musicians in the entire world, playing some of the hardest musical pieces that have ever been written on a violin that was worth $3.5 million. And all throughout that time, 1,000 and 97 people passed by as Bell was playing. And out of all those people, only a handful ever stopped, and even then, just for a few moments. But then you watch this video, and you see this one lady who stops, and she's transfixed. It's like her feet are glued to the ground. She is not moving an inch. And just like everyone else, this lady was busy. She had other places that she had to be. But she had also been at one of Joshua Bell's concerts just a few weeks earlier. She knew exactly who he was. And you can see it in the video. She is resolved to sit there and to listen to this music until it is done. And friends, So often in the busyness of life, you and I are like those people who just walk on by the beauty of the gospel. We fail to appreciate the beauty of the Savior who is standing right in front of us. And so whenever we struggle to love others as Christ has loved us, what we must do is we must stop and we must meditate. We must meditate. Upon all the different ways you and I are actually unlovable ourselves. All the ways in which we fall short of the glory of God. How we continue to sin against the Lord in thought, in word, in deed. And we must then meditate upon the hell that Jesus went through. As he drank the cup of God's judgment down to the bitter dregs. And that as a result, all those who have been called by God, and who received that free gift of faith, God has taken all of our sins, he has cast them into the sea, and he pledges that he will remember them no more. And so, brothers and sisters, because of the love that we have been shown through Jesus, those who were once themselves unlovable orphans are now called sons and daughters of the true and living King. And that love that He has sent upon us will remain upon us now and forevermore. And nothing in creation or all of uncreation could ever separate us from that love. And so, as we read in First John four eleven, beloved, if God so loved us, let us also love one another. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word to us this evening. And Lord, we readily confess that whenever we measure ourselves up against your word, against the standard that you set for us, it is so evident that we fall so far short of your glory. Father, by your Spirit, would you help us to obey your command to love one another just as you have loved us. And may, by your grace, cornerstone presbyterian church not simply be a club but may they be a true community a place that is filled with a supernatural christ-like love that the gospel might be made visible all throughout lansdale and far beyond and we ask that you would do this work in the precious name of jesus amen